0: Hello and welcome to this edition of the Faber Podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is journalist and broadcaster Jonathan Glancy. Jonathan is The Guardian's architecture and design correspondent. He's also had a fascination since childhood with Nagaland, a remote and, to foreigners, largely inaccessible state, tucked into the far northeastern corner of India. Created in 1963, the state is home to some 16 Tibeto-Burmese tribes, nearly 2 million people in all, many of whom have been fighting a little reported war for independence, on and off, since the nineteen fifties. When we met, I began by asking Jonathan to sketch in some more detail about Nagaland. Nagaland is the most northeasterly state of
1: modern day India. Where is it? It's one of the Seven Sister States. These are the states that project out on a long withered arm from the top northeast corner of India, Many people will know, of course, Calcutta. So you just have to imagine yourself at Calcutta, travelling slightly north, and then the seven sister states with Nagaland at the far, far east stretch out over the top of what's Bangladesh and what becomes underneath Bhutan and then Tibet, and they reach out to China and Burma. So Nagaland is really, in a sense, as close to China and Burma as it is to India. In fact, I'll correct myself, it is indeed right on the borders of China and Burma. And that's a very long way indeed from the great plain cities of India that most people know so well, Delhi, Bombay, Calcutta.
0: And topographically, I think you refer to it as a sort of exotic or a tropical Switzerland in some ways. So what was what the landscape like? Imagine Switzerland, or the Austrian Alps, but
1: a lot hotter. (laughs) Imagine them with rainforest down below around the rivers. But imagine, too, a tropical version with just the same kind of flowers that you will find if you went for a stroll with Heidi and her grandfather in Switzerland. It is an absolutely remarkable experience because these hills, which form part of the very far east of the Himalaya mountain range, uh, have a microclimate that's almost hard to believe, unless you're an Naga, of course, and you're used to it. So imagine a mix of rainforest, but Swiss mountains up above. Imagine deadly snakes and insects and bugs and even tigers prowling around at one point. Leeches that stick to your legs and suck your blood out. A lot of big bugs, including, of course, mosquitoes that won't stop buzzing and biting you, but right up You climb into hills which are cool and beautiful under vast, great skies that really could be
0: the Alps. And you already said that Nagaland is part of the the, the political entity that is India, but in almost every conceivable way, the people are different from the broad mass of, of Indians. The heartbreaking side of
1: my tale about Nagaland is this... 60-year fight that Nagas have put up for their independence. There are many independence wars in the world. This one makes particular sense because the people are highly distinctive. Basically, there are 16 tribes living in an artificial state called Nagaland. An artificial state because Delhi created this in 1963 to contain the Nagas and said, you are now citizens of India, when Nagas had never been citizens really of anywhere. During the period of the British Empire, Nagas muddled along with the British one way or another. They were never, of course, British citizens. They were Naga tribespeople. One thing they didn't want to be was Indian citizens. When India became independent, the Nagas approached Gandhi and they said, we want to be free. We don't want to be part of India. Gandhi said, I'd be very sad, is more or less what he said. I'd be very sad. If that's your choice, that's your choice, it's not what I would like what's not what I would like. And they thought, great, we're free. But Gandhi was assassinated a few weeks later. Nehru, the first Indian Prime Minister, thought very differently indeed. Now he thought, of course, strategically as well as tactically, and he said, no, Nagaland, we need the Naga Hills. They will f-. this is where the Japanese tried to invade India in 1944. It was where the Chinese may well have invaded India in 1962. There was no chance the Naga Hills were going to ever be independent, with the fears that Delhi had. So now the people live in this artificial state, and the great horror for them is that as soon as Nagaland, the state, came to existence and the people became Indian citizens, any act of rebellion against the Indian state was now treason. So they were its checkmate. They had suddenly become rebels. And traitors, oh, and that was the last thing that was in their mind.
0: So, so while, in terms of its flora and fauna, it's it's the paradise. It's at the same time, it's a, geopolitically it's a buffer state. And as you say, um, the Indians described it as a disturbed area. They classified it as a disturbed area, and and that that seems particularly telling. It seems very sad to call a place a disturbed area. A
1: disturbed area also allowed Delhi under various. Draconian acts of parliament to go in with shoot to kill policies. Uh, Delhi was determined that Nagaland was going to be a buffer zone state. And you can see why. I mean, they did have this tremendous fear, and they still do, both of invasion from some enemy. Who could be the enemy? I mean, obviously, China looms large, and there's always that fear of someone from outside trying to break into Indian borders. So it means. The poor place has become militarised on all sides, and so a place that is supremely beautiful, and that's what, throughout the book, I keep trying to remind myself and hopefully readers that if only you could walk with me up in these hills, anyone that loves walking in hills in any part of the world would be utterly delighted. They would find the people they met too, on the whole, delightfully charming, with a tremendous sense of irony, and humor, um, that's a great thing. So, walking through, if you could, would be wonderful. The reason you can't is because Delhi doesn't want any of us walking in those hills because it thinks we're all, or if we're not drug runners, we're going to take guns in, or we're going to spy, or we're going to do something terrible to help the Nagas fight. There are so many, though, independence wars and guerrilla armies fighting in all the seven Northeastern states of India, that one can see why Delhi is so fearful.
0: Tell me, Jonathan, about your own personal involvement with this story because it goes back several generations the, the Glancies in Nagaland.
1: It's a funny thing. I mean, Nagaland to me was uh, a pure fairy tale as a child. Um, my father and my grandfather were very much sort of um, India hands in that old sense. They loved India, and they really cared about it. They were military men. They weren't the sort of people that gloried in war. They didn't talk about war and action and fighting. That certainly wasn't part of my childhood. But they were the sort of very civilised men who spoke about flora, fauna, landscape, history, culture. They were fascinated by the tribes people they had met. And I think they were t- very fascinated by the fact that being brought up educated, trained, and having soldiered in India, that they had found this part of the world that was so different, and that to them, it was a magical place. So to me, learning from them as a boy um, in London, this seemed like, uh, as I say in the book, it was became like a secret garden story for me. And as the secret garden novel, of course, begins in India, that's appropriate. It's It was also a lost kingdom. And as a child, we all have these stories in our heads. Well, I certainly did. And I'm sure lots of boys and girls brought up in England at the time. And before, over the previous hundred years, had the same stories. They're Kipling-esque stories. They're stories of magical places. And this was one of those magical places. And I suppose, in the back of my mind, I always meant... To go and visit this part of India. By the time I went I'd already been to India several times uh, to mainland India. I use the word mainland just as Nagas do because that's how Nagas see it and I do too these days. There's a mainland, the big triangle we think of India from, from the Himalayas down to the bottom of the coast south of Madras and the Bay of Bengal. But India has 40 million indigenous people living around its edges who are forgotten and I think that Gradually, curiosity got the better of me, and I had to go and see for myself and discover whether this lost kingdom really was just that, this secret garden really was just that. I wanted the key to open the door and go in and have a look, and I finally did. And,
0: and tell me, my next question obviously must be, tell me what you discovered. Well, what I discovered was
1: indeed, um, a, first of all, a secret garden, absolutely, because this is, uh, to use the modern jargon you see in uh, my own newspaper at the Guardian, biodiversity hotspot makes me smile, that phrase, but actually there's some truth in it because the idea of this place being crammed with wildlife, the bird life, the wildlife, the flowers, I, they are just prolific and exquisite. So you really are going to a beautiful part of the world. The tribes people themselves, away from the only couple of tourist zones that one can go to, really do lead a life where they have many festivals that they enjoy, and they really do dress up in costumes that are gorgeous and wonderful and special, and uh, they look like nobody else on earth. So there's a tremendous moment of drama, especially imagine it's a young person from London finding their way out, walking by themselves in hills into villages, many of which really hadn't seen anyone from the West, not a white person, for many years, in many cases. And so it was. that, for me, was quite remarkable. So I felt, in a way, just as my grandfather or great-grandfather's generation would have felt when they first visited these villages. And that, I think, was So, so exciting. And it took me a while though then to start to learn to talk to people and to understand their history and then to realise that their own history wasn't written down very well and that it wasn't going to be an easy task to tell the story of the Naga people.
0: Nonetheless, there is quite a long lineage of anthropological interest, and you, you write about several of those figures in, in the book And many of them are very, very serious, thoughtful, considered men who, who went there in order to understand the Naga culture One
1: thing I've discovered uh, traveling and talking in mainland India is there's often still a residual protest against the British presence in India. To my generation, it's history. I mean, very history one can reach out and touch because my father and grandfather and uncles and many other people were involved in that part of the world. But for my generation, of course, I when I go to India, I hardly see myself as someone walking around in a solar topi and you know, looking loftily down um, from my horse. I wander around as anybody else and enjoy meeting people. So what I help feeling that there was this terrible gap between one's experience of Nagaland and wanting to talk about it particularly when one met Indians it was the idea that somehow one was automatically disqualified from talking about this area coming from a certain background that as soon as one mentioned Raj or Empire doors closed intellectual eyes shut down um, you're not meant to talk about these things.
0: Now, what, what kind of cult, because you, you've already said that the, the people of Nagaland are ethnically distinct from the, the broad mass of, of Indian peoples. What kind of culture did those early visitors from the West discover? Because because they're, they're, they're different in terms of religion as well as language and, and, and many other customs too. The first British uh, visitors, which were mostly, of
1: course, military, although not necessarily uncivilized, many of them were pretty civilized, and they would go on to become some of the enlightened administrators for the area in later years who wrote about the tribes very well indeed. But I think they were utterly transfixed because what they found were tribes who were clearly highly distinctive and didn't appear to have come from anywhere that they could first recognize. In terms of religion, the people they met were 100% animist. They had their gods, their gods of nature, but they certainly had no particular inkling of Christian. No inkling of Christianity. Um, whatever they'd heard about Hinduism or other religions would have been very limited. Um, the people themselves are clearly not Indians. You know, in except of course politically today they are citizens of the Indian state. Well, they have to be. Uh, they're forced to be. But these are people that. Well, they belong to a group of people who are Tibetan Burmese, one could say. But then they're more interesting than that. That's not to say those people aren't interesting, but they're doubly interesting. Because when you first meet Naga people, I remember the first things I noticed in in a village on the Burmese border, very remote village, were women wearing these wonderful conch shells, necklaces, and these necklaces are colossal. The conch shells, and conch shells are big things. And if you hang them around your neck, they're very heavy. But at the age of 20, I managed to think, hang on, we're a very, very long way from the sea indeed. Why are they wearing conch shells? Where do they come from? Well, of course, they come from the sea. Now, these have been traded along long trading paths from the sea, from the Burmese coast and elsewhere. In Indonesia now, what's interesting is that after a long, long, long amount of study, initially by British district officers and anthropologists, and then by Indian anthropologists, and then today by Naga anthropologists and historians, it's gradually been discovered and believed. This is not a hundred percent guaranteed true because the history is uncertain, and that makes Naga land special, Naga hills special. But it's believed the people had originally shifted down from southern China, from Hunan province, that they had trekked all the way through Burma, come out into the sea and occupied part of Indonesia, and had sailed back at some point, back up through Burma, and settled in the Naga Hills, which were a great defendable space or place. So it's understandable, a beautiful place, uh, full of plenty of things to eat, and you can basically look after it until... Guns arrived, it was a place one could defend very easily. But the people brought back, so a culture that stretches from China to Indonesia, and those conch shells hanging around the necks, were, of course, had very much come from an island culture, archipelago culture out in Southeast Asia. And indeed, then I learned that many of the Naga customs had come the same way. So, um, head hunting, which is a very controversial part of life. In Nagaland and the Naga Hills which may possibly some people say go on I'm still not sure I have no proof um, but it could do but these come from um, a culture that's a long way from the Himalayas and so the people have a very very intriguing complex history but it was a history they would never written down because they didn't have was it wasn't a literate culture no writing until the 19th century and so Everything is folklore,
0: hearsay, myth, and legend. And living in quite scattered communities in in these hills and and having different linguistic traditions, I was intrigued to to read that the First World War reached all the way into the Naga Hills and actually played its part in beginning to forge some sense of the Naga as a a people rather than a, a, a collection of disparate peoples. The Naga tribes were certainly separate from one another. In many ways, they used to fight each other. And in
1: a sense, they still do, unless they had a common cause or a common enemy. What was intriguing in the First World War, a large number of Naga warriors were taken out to France and Belgium. And they were employed by the Indian Army, working in France, as messengers, couriers, and even as frontline soldiers in What this did was that members of different tribes were now working together, meeting together, and fighting a common enemy, which happened to be the Germans. But the point is that they were united in some way. When they came back after the First World War, back to the Naga Hills, they suddenly realised they had something truly in common, or they could bond together to fight or they could bond together with a common cause, or in other words, they could start to become a nation for the first time. That was certainly encouraged by the British in many ways. Um the British wanted the Nagas to be, you know, to, uh, to look after themselves. And in that sense, they started to, and they became then started to reflect on who they were. And at the same time, really, writing was becoming established. And so you start to get Nagas telling their own stories in ways that we recognize today in written forms and developing a sense of nationhood rather than being disparate tribes who happen to share the same hills.
0: So jumping forward several decades, when when in 1963 the Indians created the Naga State, that was not an entirely benign act on their part, was it? India created the Naga State in
1: 1963 as a, a form of defense against invasion. Probably the Chinese, that's what they were worried about. The Chinese had, of course, tried to invade India in 1962. There was a great fear of that. And there was also a fear of insurrection, because the Nagas had been fighting very hard against the Indians by that time, solidly for 10 years. Um, the number of deaths on both sides was very high amongst the Indian army and amongst the Naga tribes. It was a brutal, bloody, forgotten war. That war, by the way, still goes on in less dramatic Terms and less. Thank heavens, fewer, far fewer deaths day to day or year by year. But in the nineteen fifties and into the sixties, the number of deaths was huge. The amount of destruction was vast. That's why India wanted to control it. They were going to stamp out any form of rebellion. They wanted Nagaland as a buffer zone, and they were going were determined to make that happen. And that's in the end why they said this is going to be not an era we administer with soldiers; it's a state.
0: And today you describe the, the situation, the tensions. I think you say, at best, they're an uncertain stalemate, and at worst, they're a powder keg. Tell, tell me tell me, in, in what way.
1: The Nagas, whoever they are, want to be independent from India. Now, Nagas, since the Second World War, and certainly since the 1960s, have moved on in many ways, or one has to be careful. certain number of Nagas have moved on. So today you will find Naga professors of literature in the United States, you will find Naga doctors in Canada, you will find Naga writers in Norway, you will find them winning prizes when they're writing great books and stories and poems. No, know, they've moved on, or at least a small percentage. Many Nagas, though, live in very poor conditions indeed. Well, one has to be careful, poor in conventional terms, but they live in monetary terms. But many of those living stretch along the Burmese border of Nagaland live a very ancient life indeed. They also like that life, and although poor, it is very beautiful. One must always be careful Um, not to over-romanticise, but the point is people are Still living free and independent lives the way they always did. And they value that. And equally, of course, many people living there would love it if their son and daughter went on to become a doctor in Canada, or even in Delhi, perhaps less so in Delhi. So Nagas, yes, Nagas have certainly, they've moved on and they will move on. But they're, whenever you sit and talk for long enough to anyone from the Naga Hills, they bond together in their determination to create an independent land. They call it Nagalim, which is like a sort of greater Nagaland, because Nagas live across national boundaries. They live in Burma, and they live in some of the other seven sister states. So they want a land that's theirs. It's a bit like, um, if you think of, say for example, the Kurds, who live on top of Iraq and Turkey, and famously have been without their own state, (laughs) <laughs> pretty much forever and they dearly would like one and in fact if they did have one perhaps a lot of conflict in that area would stop perhaps if the Nagas had their own state, the one they really want conflict would stop too
0: and the Nagas are living in a land which is rich in natural resources not not least oil but we know that resources can be a, a curse as well as a blessing don't we
1: oil is a terrible curse for many countries, Uh, it's proved to be around the world, because sadly, you, me, and others, we want the oil really to run our planes, our trains, our industry, and to lead our luxurious lifestyles. And that's terribly dangerous, especially for very poor countries who don't have control over their oil supplier production. And certainly, the state of Nagaland does not have control. Uh, Most industry in Nagaland is controlled by big Indian, often government, sometimes Government enterprises mixed with private enterprise, and they control and own those, really. So the Nagas don't have the oil in the sense that people in Abu Dhabi do, or they haven't got it to spend on what they want to spend. So oil hasn't made them rich, but oil could be dangerous for them.
0: Let me ask you, Jonathan, finally, just to, to look ahead a few years. I mean, there are obviously positive things on the, on the horizon, ways in which Nagaland could develop. It could become a, you know, a, a well-managed eco-tourism destination for but i mean how optimistic do you feel about the future for for, for the naga i can see
1: a nagalim this this new dreamt of nation state for the naga tribes working it really could because the place is beautiful it does have enough uh, natural resources and today there are enough of course educated nagas to make life work and they've been learning too about many things they're not angels you know because they have indulged over many generations in slash and burn agriculture and that is something they're learning they've had to learn about like we've had to learn about looking after our farms and looking about looking after our landscapes and they are doing that but their trouble is it's that nightmare location of Nagaland the strange thing is is that it's so unknown, Nagaland, and yet it's so important politically. And particularly if you're a politician in Delhi, you're not going to let it go because one, indeed, there's certain resources there you want. But more importantly, it's suppose a great fear for Indian politicians. It has been where India has been under this great threat of invasion by the Japanese in 1944, by the Chinese in 1962. And I can't see... For
0: many generations,
1: India letting Nagaland go.
0: Jonathan Glancy. Nagaland, A Journey to India's Forgotten Frontier, is available now in hardback. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but there are lots more interviews with Faber authors on the website at faber.co.uk forward slash podcast. And if you've enjoyed this interview, do sign up for the monthly Faber podcast by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.